0: That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
1: Throughout June, the January 6th committee has been presenting the evidence it gathered in its investigation of what happened in the Capitol Hill insurrection and of who's to blame. Some of it laid out in prime time.
0: Don't be distracted by politics. This is serious. We cannot let America become a nation of conspiracy theories and thug violence.
1: The Guardian's Hugo Lowell updates us on what we've learned, what's next, and where we go from here. I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist for The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America.
2: I think everyone uh, that has seen the images of January 6th has seen the images of these People breaking into the Capitol, storming through the Rotunda—you know—are scarred by that. It's a—it's a really harrowing moment, um, regardless of of what line of work you're in, or or what you do, or you know what
1: political party you belong to. It's just it's- for more than a year. Hugo's been following the ins and outs of the January sixth House Select Committee, which is investigating the attempted insurrection on the United States Capitol at the beginning of 2021.
2: We knew going into the hearings that the committee believed Trump um, committed crimes, that he potentially defrauded the United States and uh, conspired to obstruct an official proceeding. Those are things that they had mentioned in court papers, but they really hammered home the evidence behind those conclusions in the hearings, right? They're kind of presenting evidence that... Trump knew that the election was not stolen or should have known that the election was not stolen because everyone around him, from his attorney general, Bill Barr, you know, Trump campaign managers, White House counsels, were all telling him uh, his claims of election fraud were nonsense. And yet he proceeded to push uh, strategies to return himself to office based upon those lies anyway. Uh, And I think that sets up where the committee was always trying to go, which is if the Department of Justice ever wanted to prosecute Trump, then they have the evidentiary basis to do so. Uh, and they have the intent to do so because this is always going to be about intent. Did Trump have corrupt intent to obstruct a congressional proceeding? Did he have corrupt intent to fool the United States? And that corrupt intent can be shown by the fact that he showed willful blindness is the legal doctrine. He showed willful blindness towards what he was being told that the election uh, was not in fact stolen.
1: So you've said censored- to You said something there that goes to what a lot of people think these hearings are really about, which is that they are, in effect, doing the groundwork, sort of rolling the pitch for the Department of Justice to then prosecute. But is that your reading of it, that this is what we have been seeing, is actually a communication between this Congressional Committee and Merrick Garland, the head of the Department of Justice, the Attorney General, uh, saying, "Okay, guys, here's the evidence, now go do your job.
2: Publicly, the committee will say that that has not been their intention. Um, You know, they're a congressional committee. They have a legislative aim, that is to write new laws, uh, close loopholes that allow January 6th to happen. But having said that, I think the committee has stumbled into the fact that Trump potentially did commit crimes. And once you do that, it's very difficult to ignore. And so you have this this kind of parallel universe where there is – a Department of Justice investigation happening, and at the same time, you have this congressional investigation happening, and the congressional investigation kind of are announcing their results first, ostensibly to tell the story of January 6th to the American people, but also at the same time telling the story and and unveiling their evidence to the Justice Department. I mean, the Justice Department is not supposed to get involved in politics, uh, and, and for that reason, the congressional inquiry and the criminal inquiry have to be kept on separate tracks. And so I think there is an element of the committee showing their work to the DOJ and saying, look, this is what we've uncovered now, you take it from here.
1: And what about the purpose that isn't that, the purpose that isn't addressing the Department of Justice, but is instead addressing the American people, uh, if you like, presenting their evidence to the court of public opinion? Judged by that standard, what have been the standout moments of these hearings?
2: The standout moments have all been legal and criminal issues. There's there's stuff about how Republican members of Congress were seeking presidential pardons from Trump in the days after January 6th, how John Eastman, Trump's uh, lawyer who came up with or conceived of the idea and the strategy to have Pence throw out the election on January 6th, sought a presidential pardon. The pardons, for instance, you know, have been have been a very big deal, but they speak to potential crimes and it speaks to potential prosecutions for the DOJ. Pardons don't work in a way where you think you're innocent, but you want, you know, you're gonna go and get a pardon anyway. I don't know
1: how that translates to public opinion though, right? I was thinking that one moment that might have really cut through was Trump's own, it came in that first ring, Trump's own Attorney General, Bill Barr, saying that his view of the claim that the election had really been won by Donald Trump and had been stolen from him was... ...were bullshit. And, uh, you know, he was indignant about that. And um, That seemed to be a moment that whatever, you know, the political jargon and the legal jargon that sometimes... Populates these sorts of inquiries and hearings that would get through to people.
2: I think it was a standout moment for sure. I think the the reason why I say in terms of the court of public opinion, why it's difficult to gauge, is because America is so divided, and people coming into these hearings already had, or most people already had their minds made up. I mean, Democrats believe that Trump was responsible. Um, most Republicans believe that Trump wasn't responsible. They might think it was. What happened was abhorrent, but they might not place the blame at the feet of Donald Trump. And so you have this very narrow sliver of people who could be swayed by these hearings and you know that has always been the target audience the committee has been trying to trying to influence. but it's a subset of people that have to that have to have an open mind about what happened on January 6, don't already have an opinion
1: and also were watching these hearings. Yeah, that's a vanishingly small uh, demographic, I can imagine. We found out on Wednesday that there are going to be more hearings in July rather than finishing up. On Thursday, the focus was on Trump's attempts to pressure the Department of Justice to his own ends. Uh, why, why the need, given how many of these there have been and how extensive and detailed they have been, why the need for more hearings into the next month? Well, so they're
2: going to keep the last two hearings that they were going to do anyway. They're just they're just moving that back slightly. Um, the House goes on uh, recess this Friday and then they're going to come back on July twelfth. So we don't have a full schedule yet. But there's talk about adding another hearing. The chairman of the committee, Benny Thompson, has been very clear that if it takes more hearings to tell the story of January sixth, then they will do that.
0: It's a work in progress.
1: We could stop. But if we find out additional information
0: that can help us, you know, we'll include it.
2: Um, The way they've they've structured the hearings so far has been to say, well, we believe Trump had a multi-pronged plan, a seven-point plan, in fact, to overturn the results of the 2020 election, which culminated with the Capitol attack.
1: They, they have very tightly structured it. I mean, it really could be like a sort of Netflix limited series, you know, with seven episodes. Do you want to just talk us through what the seven elements are and how they've structured this this narrative, this story, as they've played it out over the weeks?
2: They start with part one, which they said was Trump repeatedly and aggressively lying to the public that the election was stolen from him. That started on election night.
1: We were getting ready to win this
0: election Frankly, we did win this election.
2: Uh, Part two was this corruption of the Justice Department. Trump sought to replace the acting attorney general with a loyalist so he could kind of weaponize the DOJ um, to have them support and uh, endorse his election lies. Part three, Trump corruptly and repeatedly pressured Vice President Pence to violate the Constitution with a plan he knew was unlawful. All Vice President Pence has to do is send it back to the states to recertify and we become president and you are the happiest people. Which was to refuse to count the certified electoral votes on January 6th. Part four, Trump improperly pressured state election officials to change their state's election results and undermine effectively the will of the voters by flipping their state's results from Biden to Trump. I just want to find... 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have. Part five was Trump's team, including his lawyers, telling Republicans across the country to manufacture these fake slates of electors and send those fake election certificates uh, to Congress on January 6 to confuse and to deceive Republicans in Congress into saying, oh, there's dueling slates of electors, and so we need to hand the election to Trump. And then part six, Trump effectively seemed to summon and assemble this mob of supporters in D.C. and told them at the Ellipse rally to march the U.S. Capitol. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. And then part seven, um, despite the violence uh, unfolding at the Capitol and Trump knowing and watching it on TV, uh, he refused to call off the rioters and refused to call out the National Guard to dispel the violence
1: even hearing you set it out like that, it sounds like such a compelling case. And I know you, you've been telling us and others have made this point too, that actually in America, so many minds are made up uh, and that people more or less come into this with fixed views and they can't be budged. But let's imagine that narrow group of people that that, that, that do uh, sit somewhere in the middle and are not fully convinced one way or the other. To those people watching, have there been some unexpected heroes from this story? And who, el- who have a perhaps as the villains of the piece, besides the obvious? Well, I think the the chairman and the vice
2: chairman of the committee have emerged as relative heroes, right? Benny Thompson. Good morning. Who has kind of shepherded this committee through 11 months of investigation.
1: Because those numbers aren't just numbers, they are votes. They are your votes. They are the will and the voice of the people.
2: Pretty deftly, I mean, he's also the chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee. There's kind of really understated and calm, kind of grandfather-like figure. You know, you feel safe around Benny Thompson, I think is is what one person at uh, one of the hearings told me. Um, Meanwhile, there's Cheney, the vice chair of the committee.
0: As you will see in the hearings to come, President Trump believed his supporters at the Capitol, and I quote, were doing what they should be doing.
2: She's this stalwart conservative, but anti-Trump Republican who may well have tanked her own primary, uh, by sitting on this committee and going after Trump because it's seen her kicked off uh, uh, the, re- re- the Republican leadership in the House, it's seen Trump uh, go after her personally and politically, and um, she's also been censured by her state Republican Party. She was the one who delivered that really memorable line where she said,
0: There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain.
2: That line in particular, I think, um, really shook Capitol Hill. In a way that nothing else, frankly, I think even Republican officers uh, that are loyal to Trump um, felt that, and and I got text messages from um, people in, in Republican members' offices who who felt kind of sick uh, when they heard that because a lot of the, a lot, I think a lot of the staffers like Trump and think. Um, he, he lost the election. But when their members go out and say, well, no, the election was stolen from him, I think it puts them in a very difficult position. But Liz Cheney certainly was a hero. I think the people who aren't the heroes, though, are the people like Bill Barr, the Trump campaign managers, the White House lawyers, who said nothing through the post-election period after January 6, when they had an opportunity to condemn Trump, to distance themselves from Trump, when Bill Barr resigned, he wrote a letter saying that Trump was wonderful and that they had a great run together. There was none of this, what, what, what came out in the committee about how Barr resigned because he couldn't take any more of Trump's bullying and he couldn't take any more of Trump's lies because they were unsustainable. He said that Trump was a wonderful president. And so I think there's a lot of reputation laundering that that is going on now. And I think those people shouldn't be
1: considered as heroes. Fascinating, because there has been some good press for Bill Barr calling bullshit on the president's lies. There's also been good press for Mike Pence, because realising the huge pressure that Trump was putting on him to abuse his ceremonial authority and somehow refuse to certify Joe Biden's election. And in the end, Mike Pence refused to do it and he's been getting some pretty good press. We're fortunate for Mr. Pence's courage on January 6th. Our democracy came dangerously close to catastrophe. That courage put him in tremendous danger. Do you think that too is undeserved for the reason you've just said? Yeah, I think so. I mean, what,
2: Pence didn't destroy democracy and so we should praise him, I mean, the guy did his job. So this whole thing about how Trump, uh, Pence saved democracy by refusing to cave to Trump's demands is just is just kind of laughable. I mean, you know, let's say even if Pence had gone ahead with Trump's plan, you know, th- then what? You know, it's possible that the courts step in. It's possible that other Republicans step in. It was not exactly clear that Pence's individual role in standing up to Trump and wagging his finger in Pence's face, uh, you know, made him into the savior of democracy. That I think people. Uh, are now characterising
1: him in in, in some places. No shortage of villains, though. Obviously, Donald Trump himself. But I did want to ask you about that, that group of people who have testified, Conservatives, a lot of them Republicans, you know, really damagingly against Donald Trump, saying that what he did was an abuse and a threat to democracy, and nevertheless saying afterwards that they are still loyal to him and would still back him. I'm thinking of a Republican like Rusty, Bowers of Arizona. What do you make of that, that sort of simultaneously saying, yep, Trump tried to steal an election, and but he's, he's still my guy?
2: I think it's extraordinary, but I also think it's a public-facing comment. I mean, Rusty Baz, the the Speaker of the Arizona House, he had death threats made against him, his family, while his daughter was dying in their home. And then you know, Rusty Bowers says to the media and and says says on air that well, he would still vote for Trump again if he was the Republican nominee in twenty twenty four. The thing that really is just extraordinary and remarkable, and you run out of superlatives sometimes, is how these Republicans who were so wronged by Trump and who had to suffer so much at the hands of Trump, like Rusty Bowers, are are prepared to you know back him in public because they want to keep their positions of power.
1: So you've mentioned uh, the uh, politics of this, the upcoming prospect of elections. What's your read of how this affects the midterm elections, Um, whether this will benefit uh, the Democrats who've been leading the way on this inquiry, or whether it uh, hurts Republicans by association with Donald Trump, for all those who didn't take a stand against it. Do voters care about this? Will this be an issue in the midterms? How do you think it plays out in November? I don't think it becomes an issue for
2: the midterms at all. I think people thought, oh, it would be good to carry Trump through to the midterms because You know, nothing drives Democrats to the ballot like Trump. But then of course the Biden administration is facing record high gas prices, high inflation, and these are the pocketbook issues I think that people really care about. I think, you know, one indication of the fact that the capital attack in January sixth is not gonna loom large in the midterms is that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, that's the, the elections arm of the House Democratic Conference, is not looking to weaponize or or message on January 6th at all. In fact, a lot of their efforts have been on how Biden is trying to combat rising gas prices. It's been about, you know, Republicans are trying to get abortion rights. January 6th doesn't feature anywhere. And the Democratic pollsters that I spoke to um, last week told me that they weren't looking, or they weren't being commissioned to do any polls
1: on January 6th for the uh, midterms. Fascinating. What about the man at the centre of this whole story? What consequences will there be, do you think, for Donald Trump as a result of all the evidence that we've heard set out over these uh, weeks? It's really difficult to say. I think the
2: evidence presented at these hearings have been very compelling. And Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, has said publicly that he's watching. You know, the two original crimes that the committee accused Trump of, of committing In court filings back uh, in March, uh, remain probably the most likely crimes that he could be charged by. So that's obstructing a congressional proceeding or an official proceeding. That statute says through action or inaction. So the very fact that Trump didn't do anything to call off the rioters as commander in chief, that could speak to that inaction part of that statute. The other potential crime is defrauding the United States. I mean, he was telling the entire country that the election was stolen when he or a reasonable person would have known based on the advice of his lawyers that the election wasn't stolen, that how that all contributed to him um, trying to get Pence to overturn the election. There is one more very simple thing that he could be charged for. Trump's campaign and Trump himself telling people to donate to his official election defense fund, which didn't actually exist. That could be mail fraud, or that could just be regular fundraising fraud. And sometimes, you know, the easiest Ways to secure convictions are to go with the simplest crimes. You know, if you if you could charge Trump with seditious conspiracy, you know that would grab headlines. But if you charge Trump and you were able to secure a conviction against Trump for something like fraud, he would still go to jail. I think there are myriad ways this could go. It's not exactly clear which one the Justice Department will take, if any. But I think the potential for criminal charges are very much on the table after the committee outlined its evidence.
1: Hugo, we always ask our guests on the podcast a what else question. And I thought we would ask about gun safety. The United States Supreme Court on Thursday struck down a New York law which sought to limit the presence of guns in public. But just in the political sphere, you obviously follow Congress. Most people after that horrific massacre in Uvalde, Texas, which left 19 schoolchildren dead, predicted that the politicians would almost certainly do nothing. And yet, as you and I speak, uh, a bill proposed by the Republican Senator John Cornyn seems to be making progress in the Senate. I mean, if the Senate
2: is able to pass this bill that is, that has actually survived the kind of negotiation process. By the way, you know, the the build back better, which was the Democrats plan, um, they, they were trying to get bipartisan support for for infrastructure, that, you know, has failed repeatedly in the negotiation stage. The fact that this is about to make out of the negotiation stage, I think, is very significant. Um, and if passed, this would obviously be the most consequential gun reform legislation that has Uh, passed in in probably living memory. Um, If the Senate passes it, the House is very likely to pass it given it's controlled by Democrats. So I think, I I don't know what it means for the Republican Party at large because this kind of has taken everyone by surprise, including on Capitol Hill. I think it also reflects The fact that Republicans in the the House and Senate are starting to wake up to opinion polling, that suggests most people think there should be some sort of gun restriction um, so that an 18-year-old can't just buy a weapon of war and go shoot up kids. You know, they're they're very attuned to public polling. And I think the fact that that skyrocketed in the days after Uvalde uh, might have been the impetus for them to really sit down and try and figure out something uh, on gun reform.
1: Hugo Lowell, congressional reporter for The Guardian. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And that is all from us for this week. Do make sure to tune into our sister podcast today in Focus next Wednesday as they speak to Lawrence Douglas, an Amherst College professor and Guardian opinion contributor who will delve deeper into the growing case against Donald Trump. So search for that wherever you You get your podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens, the executive producer, Maz Ebtehaj. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening.
0: This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts?